Say good morning. One, two, three. Who are you looking at? Good morning. Now you're looking John 10, 10, KJV. The thief, the thief cometh not but to for to steal and not and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Thankful to be here this morning, thankful for our children's choir, and uh, thankful we have children to be in a children's choir. Uh, we're thankful for everybody that brings their children to come to Sunday school. It's really important, um, whether you're a grandparent or a parent or an aunt or an uncle or a family friend, we're thankful that you're willing to bring children to Sunday school. 
Uh, we're thankful to be here this morning, and we're excited to see what the Lord has in store for us. And um, I'm just going to ask Brother Gary Cox to pray dismissal to Sunday school. Well, it's good to be here this morning. Thanks for everyone for coming out. We're going to be in John chapter 8 and the last uh, day or two of our revival that we had recently. Our evangelist, uh, Brother Israel, uh, read and preached out a lot of what this lesson is today. And this was the woman who was brought to Christ uh, by the scribes and Pharisees. They indicated that she had been caught in the very act of adultery and asked if she should be stoned. Um, and so we're going to back up a little, uh, which is not uncommon for me. But I think in order to really understand what's going on in chapter 8 in the book of John, we need to go back and look at chapter 7 in the book of John. And so we're going to do that a little bit. Um, and John chapter 7, verse 2, uh, talks about, let me just go ahead, I'll flip over here to this. Now the Jews' feast of the tabernacles was at hand. So in chapter 7, in the book of John, the feast of tabernacles is taking place. And it's, in my opinion, it's very important to understand what happens in chapter 8, to understand some about the Feast of the Tabernacles and what Christ did uh, during chapter 7 during the Feast of the Tabernacles. And so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Feast of the Tabernacles. That was set up and discussed in Leviticus chapter 23. And I'm going to do a lot of uh, jumping around. You're welcome to look at that if you want to. You don't have to. But I'm going to go there and read some of that. Leviticus chapter 23, verses 34, 35, and 36. 
On the first day shall be in holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein. Seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. On the eighth day shall be a holy convocation unto you. You shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. It is a solemn assembly, and, shall, and ye shall do no servile work therein. These are the feasts of the Lord. And that's verse uh, 37 there. And so... Um, that was establishing the Feast of the Tabernacle, and they had it every year. It was during the time of harvest uh, that they had the Feast of the Tabernacle. And so that's what's going on in chapter uh, 7 in John, immediately before our lesson today. Now, John chapter 7 and verse 37 says, in the last day, that great day of the feast, and this is talking about the feast of the tabernacle, Jesus stood and cried, saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. So the term living water is very important here. I looked this up. I, I did some, some research on the term living water, and it's something we're familiar with. Um, to my way, in my research, the only two places I can find that Christ spoke the term living water was one, the woman at the well of Samaria, where he says, I would have given to you living water if you had asked of me a drink. And right here. So let me ask, is there, we know Christ is the living water. Is there water that's not living water? And he, he distinguishes, just, he didn't say, I'm, I'm the water. He said, I'm the living water. So there's a difference. Christ didn't say, I'm one of the ways. He said, I am the way. He didn't say, I am a door. He said, I am the door. So he didn't just say, I'm water, or I'm some of the pool of water, or I'm one of the rivers of water. He said, I am the living water. And so it's interesting to me that Christ on two occasions uses the term living water. One, when he's talking to the woman, and we all know this lesson, uh, we've studied it and heard it preached on, but he's, he tells this to the woman sitting by a well in Samaria when he's talking to her about her condition in her life and she was an adulterer. So here, the day before Christ knows that he's going to be confronted by the scribes and the Pharisees with a woman brought to him who has again been caught in adultery, he describes himself as the living water. Right? So keep that in mind. Um, I think it's, it's interesting that after he talks about himself here as the living water, that there are a lot of those people, if you read on down at the end of chapter 7, there are a lot of those people that believe. Uh, 
but there are also a number that don't believe. All right? And so it leads us now into chapter 8. This is the very next day. So in chapter 7, where Christ stands and says this, I believe it's the last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles. So the very next day, he gets up early, he goes back to the temple, and it leads us here to our lesson. Jesus went into the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? And then it goes on and verse 6 is, is very enlightening. They said this tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So they bring this woman and they say she was caught in adultery. The law tells us that we should stone her. What should we do? And the, the entire thing was a setup. I mean, they were trying to, to trick him. Um, and so... In very Jesus-like fashion, and, and I picture this this whole scene taking place in my my head. He's you know sitting or standing here, teaching, and this all occurs. And rather than address the scribes and the Pharisees or have a conversation with them, ask them a question, ask the woman a question. You know, I'm thinking, well, if I'm if I'm the judge and I'm getting, I'm being asked to make this decision. Okay, well, I might want to know some more details. But Christ didn't need any more details. So, you know, if I'm one of these scribes or Pharisees, I mean, I'm thinking, all right, here we're going to get him here. We, we, this is pretty slick. We've, we've, out, we've outfoxed him this time. He'll have to answer us. He's got to tell us something. What, you know, what are we going to do? Well, we got him. What's he going to do? Well, when they ask the question and that, you know, they've got this moment here that they, I think, are kind of thinking, aha, you know, he just ignores them and kneels down and starts writing in the sand. So what's he write? Neil, what's he write? Don't know. <laughs> what does he write? I'm sure everyone in here has thought about it a little bit. What does he write in the sand? I've got some ideas, and we're going to talk about them. And I'm going to tell you, I don't know either. Okay? I mean, I've got ideas. I've got one that I think is probably what he wrote or something close. And, but it all comes with the disclaimer. It's just, it's just Blaine. It's not biblical. All right. I've heard lots of lessons and different things taught on it. So, um, so let's read on the rest, a few more verses here, and then we'll talk about what does he write in the sand. And really, uh, this lesson, 
I guess if I was titling it, it's not what, what the, the Sunday school lesson the, the folks titled it, but I would, I would title it, What's Written in the Sand? So he acts like he can't hear him. He stoops down and he starts to write. So, so when they continued asking him, so I mean, they continued. They they didn't quit. They said, you know, should what you know, what should we do here? Should we stone her? Should we not stone her? Should we give you know what? What do you say? What should we do? Because again, they're trying to trick him. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, "All right, now get this." He doesn't say, she's not guilty. He doesn't say, ignore the law, or the law's not important. Right? That's what they were, they wanted him to say, well, let her go, or yep, let's stone her. Okay, either one is good for them. He doesn't say either one of those things. He doesn't. No. He that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. It's pretty good, isn't it? The only one that was there that was qualified was him. Everybody else is a sinner. He's the only one. He was the only one that could have satisfied that requirement. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now get this. And they which heard it, they which heard what he said, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest. So the, old, the oldest one of the, of the bunch that had come he left first, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Wow, what a way. You talk about taking, you, you've heard the term, you know, they took the air out of the room. You know, there was, there was tension and there was going to be something. And then somebody says one thing or does one thing and then kind of it just feels like all the air is left to the room. Jesus just took all the air out of the room. He that's without sin cast a stone. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where art thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. So he didn't say what you've been doing is okay. He didn't say, you don't have to live under these rules. He just said, I'm not condemning thee. See, the, the interesting thing about adultery under the Levitical and, and the law written in Deuteronomy was it's a capital offense. If, if you're caught in adultery, it's a capital offense. It's death. And so I think that's the reason that Christ is talking about living water when he's dealing with these two particular situations uh, because it makes such a correlation to where we are as sinners 
and our need and the only way that we're going to get salvation is through him giving us living water. It's pretty interesting. Now, this is historical. This is not biblical, so I want to I want to make that clarification. But according to history and according to just the way that some of the, the Jewish information on the way that they would conduct the Feast of the Tabernacles. This took place right in Jerusalem, in, uh, you know, right there just outside of, of the tabernacle. And they would meet daily, and there was a big altar there. And the priests would go to the Pool of Shalom, which was the cleanest water that they had in the city. And they would get some water out of the pool of Shalom and they would take it back and they would dump it on the altar, pour the water on the altar, signifying that there is water and cleansing upon the altar if it is accepted. All right. On the last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles, they would actually march around the altar seven times and then pour the water uh, on the altar. So there's there's pure water on the altar on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Isn't it interesting that Christ stood right there on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles and declared, I am the living water. Right, you see the significance here? I mean, really, the significance was them pouring the water on the altar. He was there and presented himself the living water upon the altar on the last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, let's go over. If you want to turn, you can. I'll read it. You don't have to. But in Jeremiah 2 and 13. This is Jeremiah, hundreds of years before. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Well, this is hundreds of years before this has taken place. You know what's amazing about the pool of Shalom? Hezekiah had his workers dig through the mountain to create a cistern to bring the water from the spring where the water springs out of the earth to the pool of Shalom. Sounds exactly like what Jeremiah is... I mean, he's making a comparison, but he's saying, we've got broken cisterns that won't carry water, and we've left the fountain of living water. And compare that with the pool of Shalom, which is living water and pure water, coming through a cistern that will carry water from a spring that's springing up all the time. What a great comparison. But really, if you think about it, Christ is the water of the pool of Shalom. I mean, the pool of Shalom is a natural place that was there and had actual physical water in it. But Christ satisfies all of that spiritually. And so he offers himself to the people in 
the tabernacle on the day of the Feast of Tabernacles in the synagogue there, and some accept him and some don't. So let's look at Jeremiah 17 and 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth. Now remember that phrase right there, shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. So what does Christ write in the sand? Again, I don't know exactly what he wrote in the sand. But this right here is saying if we forsake the living waters, read it again, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth. Well, and Bill said he might have been writing some of their sin in the sand. And, and that goes right along with where, I, where I'm going to get to here in just a minute. I agree with that. I think there's something very specific that he wrote, and I'm going to get to it. And again, that's just my opinion. But I think there is something very specific that when he stooped and wrote that it left not one of them. See, I thought about that. He could have, I mean, there may have, it doesn't say how many scribes and Pharisees there were. There could have been five. There could have been 25 for all I know. He knew enough that he could have stooped and written down, you know, you know stole an apple from the market, uh, you know, didn't pay all your taxes and written their name by, he could have written each and every one of them. Because he can certainly do that with all of us. I mean, he knows our shortcomings. Each and every one have, have failed. We've all come short. Um, but let me look at this 7 and 39. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So yeah, when he's talking about that river of water, he's certainly talking about the Spirit. I mean, and John's trying to make that clear here, that he's not talking about a physical river of water coming from, you know, each of us that are saved. He's talking about we're going to have a spiritual witness uh, that's going to come forth. So um, so let's go back here and, and look at verses maybe 6 and 7 and 8. Let's, let's read 5. Now Moses in the law commanded us, that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? Isn't it interesting? Think about the irony here. They're bringing words from the law to Christ, who's part of the Godhead, who wrote the law and delivered it to Moses and, and trying to trap him with words that he wrote. i got to tell you this this. Uh, example because this is 
it's certainly not the same, but it, it is kind of, it's funny. So uh, everyone knows that, that my law partner, Matt Huffman, is state senator and currently is the president of the Senate in the state of Ohio. And a few years ago, I had an issue that I, I wanted him to bring forth a bill on, and I had talked to him for a while. And he said, yeah, I think that's a, a good thing. I'll, I'll propose that and sponsor it. And he did. And it went for a year or two, and it got passed. And he had come to me a couple of times and said, is this language kind of what you were thinking? And I said, yeah, and we, he and I talked about it. And, and I didn't write the bill, but we discussed the language and tweaked a word or two to make it very clear what was intended. So about six months after the bill had been passed and had taken effect, I had somebody call me and said, hey, and it was about this issue, and they said, you know, we see that you've prepared these documents and have presented this, but we don't agree with you. We think you're wrong. I said, okay, well, not the first time that's happened. And uh, so I said, well, why do you think I'm wrong about? Well, they start explaining what the bill is supposed to mean that, that Matt had proposed and gotten passed, that I had consulted on to get it, to get the language done. Okay. And so they stopped about halfway down. I said, well, what about this part down here, which clarified what I was trying to get done? Huh, never looked at that before. And so they went back and looked at it again, and they called me back and said, yeah, we agree with you. We're going to go ahead and pass that. So, I mean, that one worked out okay. But, you know, how ironic that it is that here is the man who actually wrote, you know, part of the Godhead that wrote and proposed the law to Moses. And they're bringing it to him, trying to trick him with it. See the irony in that? I mean, I just, it just boggles my mind. They had no idea who they were, you know, who they were dealing with. Um, so the law of Moses, I've read over this a hundred times and never really paid much of attention to that. But what does that law actually say? So... Let's look back at Deuteronomy again. And Deuteronomy 22, and I'm going to read specifically verses 22 and 24. This goes on for a while. It gives lots of different examples with variables, but these two verses, I think, will, will get the crux of it. If a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so that they shall put away evil from Israel. And then verse 24, Then ye shall bring them both out unto the gate of that city, and ye shall stone them with stones, and they shall die. What's missing? What's missing? You guys see it? There's, there's something missing here. Where's the man? They've brought the woman. Caught in the very act of adultery. Where's the man? They're not following the law of Moses. They're following the law of the scribes and the Pharisees. See, what was going on was... They were stoning a lot of women 
but they weren't stoning very many men. It's possible that one of the men who was also caught in adultery was there with the scribes and Pharisees accusing this woman. There's no Bible that says that, but it's possible. Maybe it was one of their good buddies, and they said, you head on over to the coffee shop, and we're going to take her and go take care of some business. All right? Maybe it was one of their sons or their brothers or another family member. Whatever the case was, and we don't know, we certainly do know that this group that brought this woman were not following the law of Moses strictly, or they would have brought both, as verse 24 says, then bring them both out unto the gate. They brought one. I believe. Don, and I'll tell you, I hope I've showed you my hand. If I was a card player, I wouldn't be very good. I believe that Christ knelt and wrote down these words out of Deuteronomy, or possibly the words out of Leviticus, or maybe he writes them both, because in Leviticus 20, it says essentially the same thing. Might have. So did he incorporate some of that? Maybe. But I believe at the very least he stooped and wrote down the requirements for the stoning of two people caught in adultery in the sand. And they all knew the language, but he made it very clear unto them that none of them were without sin because they had just broken the law of Moses by not bringing the man as well. What do you think? I mean, it makes sense. Now, again, this is just blame. This isn't, I mean, I've got no way to prove it. I just think it, it makes a lot of sense. Could have been like Bill said. If there were ten of them, he may have stooped and written down each one of their names and written down something that they had recently done. Or maybe he didn't write their name. Maybe he just wrote down what they did. If some of them were adulterers, maybe he wrote down the woman's name. And when they saw the woman's name, they might have went, Oh, son of a gun, how does he know about that? You know? I... Right. Never a man spake like this man. There was something, when the spirit moves, when God speaks to you, when he touches you, it's different. You know it. I can't explain it. I can tell you something about it, but I can't explain it. You have to experience it to know. They all experienced it right there. And, you know, whatever he wrote in the sand... He wrote what was needed, right? And he knows all about us. He knows what we've done. He's willing to forgive us. What does he tell this woman? He just written down one individual's name as sin. 
others could have seen what he was doing, and he, they know they were going to be next, you know. Yeah. They know they're all young. Yeah, I mean, if they all knew that the, the eldest of the, the group or somebody in the group had recently messed up, but they were all there with him anyway, and Christ knelt down and wrote, you know, what that person had done and some details, they might have said, well, you know, he's, he's got the goods on him. He's going to have them on me too. So I don't know what it was. All I know is that he knelt down there and wrote in the sand and they all left. So, nothing, I, I love the song, uh, God's grace reaches farther than sin will ever go. However far sin can reach, God's grace is, reaches farther. And so, he was left in a spot where it was him and the woman, and he says, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned to thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. The only one who could, could meet that standard was Christ. And he didn't condemn her. Go and sin no more. He's not happy with sin, but he loves the sinner. And so... Just, you know, great, uh, to me, it's just great scripture. It's been preached on so many times, but I, I just, I thought I'd take a little different approach, so hopefully it got you thinking. I love going back and looking at the, the language out of the law, um, because that's what I do. I mean, somebody brings me a set of facts, I go find the language in the law, and I say, okay, how do these facts fit into this? And on this one, it's clear that there was something missing. Anybody have any comments on that? Well, there's a few more verses that are on down at another part, and we'll read those as well. But does anybody have any comment on this this section? All right. So John 8 and 56. Uh, so this is Jesus having a discussion uh, again with the Jews and he said unto them here, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old. Hast thou seen Abraham? Because that would have been you know, hundreds and hundreds of years before this. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. So, you know, and we've, we've talked about this a lot, but our carnal minds are stuck in a lineal way of thinking at things that is constrained by time and, and Christ's mind was not, didn't have that because he had eternity and he understood it. I can't really understand eternity. I mean, it gives me a headache when I think about it. Um, so verse 59 then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. So it wasn't his time yet. Um, he was having a conversation with them. It was important. They wanted to kill him right there. Uh, he obviously was willing to die, but he knew that there were things that had to be accomplished before that happened. And so he hid himself from them, and 
slipped out. Right through the midst, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, knowing that he could do that makes the crucifixion so much more amazing. Because they didn't catch him and strong arm him. He voluntarily went. He, gave, he let them catch him. They did catch him, but he let them. And it was that time. And so he was willing to go. So good lesson. Does anybody have any comments or questions? All right. Thank you for your attention.